the Broad Place. On the podcast today, I interview Vashti Whitfield. Over the last 20 years, Vashti has lived, worked, and breathed a life driven by her passion to provoke, inspire, and facilitate the transformation and development of human potential. As a true alchemist, after the death of her husband, Vashti chose to convert her own tragic loss into a catalyst to educate and inspire millions of people around the world. Vashti now collaborates and works alongside inspiring individuals in an ever-growing global community on how to harness human potential through purpose, passion, and potential. I had the pleasure of meeting Vashti seven years ago, and it was an instant connection, and one we've fostered for years collaborating and working together. I call her a mind samurai, and that she's incredibly skilled and exacting about how she moves through one's mind. Above all, though, Vashti's inspired me enormously, and I've been grateful that she's pulled me into line when I've needed it most, as she has a discerning honesty that represents just at the right moments. And she's shown me our enormous capacity as humans to continue to expand through self-understanding, compassion, and her intense humor has brought such light to so many situations. Hope you enjoy this conversation we had together and garner some little moments of inspiration to move forward with more clarity in your life. So, Vashti, thank you so much for joining me here today on the High Grade Living Podcast. What I wanted to discuss with you today is our chapter, which is deepening your relationships. And I'll read, first of all, uh, one of the sentences from this chapter, which is our beliefs, ideas, and assumptions about the world are reflected back to us through the relationships with the people in our lives. There are countless opportunities to study these reflections as all of us, even monks living in monasteries, must interact with others. And what I wanted to discuss with you today was how we can, in a more high-grade way, communicate with ourselves and communicate with others more honestly and more lovingly and use the power of language, which for you as an executive coach and an author and a speaker, language is obviously a huge component uh, of what you do. Can I ask you, when it comes to your own language and auditing and refining that. Are there any tools that you use to ensure that you're, the way you're speaking and communicating is in alignment with your higher self? It's a really interesting question. And where I might start is the whole notion of considering life as we and not just me. And it's interesting how you introduced me there. You described me as an executive coach, an author, and a speaker. And for, no, for those of you who know me dearly and closely, and, and even you know, many of the people that have kind of traveled beside me over the last nine years in the rather interesting chapters and ventures I've got to live, many of them would never describe me as that, right? Yes, so you're what, the point professional <laughs> Well, yeah, but also interestingly, what you chose to language and introduce me to give your audience perhaps context or security or to set up trust. And so I go back to that whole notion of high grade being our ability to consider the we as a collective and not just the me. So what language am I choosing to punctuate and speak into listening of others? Which means we need to be fluid with our language, not fixed. Um, it means we need to be able to think about what specific words we might use to be appropriate for the person we're speaking to or the audience we're speaking to or the human being we love and are standing next to at this stage in their life that will actually resonate and land with them. And so I would say the most 
you know, specific and powerful tool is really one of a core value, which is, and this is going to sound a bit cheesy, or am I allowed to swear on this podcast? Yes, you may. <laughs> a bit wanky, but it would be a bit, it's about humanity. You know, am I speaking words and using language in the way it is there to be used that not only enable others, but also really nurture and, and foster the human being I want to be for myself and for others? Mm, okay, beautiful. So in that in that process, if we were to look at, say, which is something that I always love, Ramdas, who you and I both adore, has always, as he teaches, he always says, don't embody your roles, embody your soul. And we get so caught up in our roles, which is obviously then how, because there was a lot of things I could have chosen for you in regards to also being, you know, mother, filmmaker, creative. Um, do you think that we have an unconscious bias towards our roles in modern society and our identification with them? I'm just, if, if I pause for a second, it's just because I'm processing the words that you just shared with me there. It's really interesting. The word that just popped into my head there was ego. Mm. And if, if I kind of divide ego into a, a pathway of three, the first would be, okay, who am I trying to show up as? You know, what mm -hmm. words am I using to appear as something? That could be one. And the second pathway would be, what words am I neglecting to use to, in fact, not show up as something? You know, the unworthiness of ego, like I'm not enough, I'm not big enough, I'm not there. So I'm going to perhaps withhold language. And then the third part of the ego is, you know, who is this person that I am trying to impress? Where is there potentially love between us? Or how if I just show up as nothing other than myself? Can I language things in a different way that I'm not trying to impress? And I think it comes back to that thing that you and I have talked about so many times, which is the duality and the difference between inspiring someone other than other than instead of excuse me trying to rock up and, t and intimidate someone and mm. I think there's this really subtle balance with ego where where we don't quite know which one we're supposed to be in the context of status in the context of who we're talking to and in the context of who and how we want to create our legacy like who who am I supposed to fucking be in this moment and what should I say accordingly and often it takes a whole lifetime for people to kind of come to that place of ease and just like this is who I am take me as I leave uh, take me or leave me but I think for a number of people it's really challenging to find that confidence and that comfort in how we show up and what we, words we use to describe ourselves. Mm, yeah absolutely I've got that note that sat above um, my desk which is also in the book which says no protecting no proving hiding and defending and it's like the four pillars of like if at any time and the, I think when you discuss the ego it's the proving I'm trying to prove something in this moment mm. and when we do that we just instantly misalign with our authenticity and it's mm. trying to bring mm. something to the party that's not if I find that the the word authenticity is obviously an alignment where, where it's something we're all trying to do and moving towards if someone was new to this concept and they were, you know, had been, uh, had a bit of a shake up, a bit of a knockabout in life, and then had this moment where they thought, I don't know who I authentically am. Is there anything or a range of things that you would recommend someone moving through to be more authentic, to be more aligned? Well, you, you actually have a, a section that points to it in the beautiful book, which is about values and your value system. Mm -hmm. um, authenticity 
it comes from, it's like a boat. You know, if a boat doesn't have a rudder, it's going to go wherever the tide takes it. And whilst that sounds fairly romantic, you may end up, you know, crashing into something if you don't have a sense of choice in the direction you'd like to travel in. Um, and, and if we're going to go in the kind of nautical metaphor here, um, uh, which is really not my uh, skill set, uh, along with um, navigation, it's also a bit like a compass. We need to know what our bearings are. And when we look at what our core values are, it starts to give us a sense of what is important and why. Now, there's very much two parts to that. When we start to look at what our core values are and why, we're often smacked full on in the chops or a little bit like, you know, when you're in a yoga class and you're looking forward and you suddenly see a testicle pop out of a, a shorts or something you shouldn't see and it's a bit like, uh, 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 disgusting. Uh, sometimes we see values where we go, oh, my God, you know, wow, actually, instead of um, valuing well-being, I really value success and I actually really value wealth. Should I own that? Like, should, should I own up to that? Um, and it's interesting because we'll often feel some sense of shame around what our actual values are and, and often forecast what we think they should be. But that is where the juicy clues are. We mm. need to understand what is it, you know, from a belief system that has had me value that. Dig around a little bit, explore. You know, sometimes we inherit values, not necessarily like a nice piece of jewelry or a painting or, you know, a beautiful story, but a rather shitty inheritance. So when we dig around a little bit and explore where those values values came from what we have the and I love this word we have the choice to do is to start to recognize and explore and learn and find out what it is outside of those fears outside of those attachments outside of those inherited beliefs and value systems that is actually our authentic value system and only then do we get to start to move, migrate into building a life and a way of being that actually honors the way we want to operate in the world? Mm. And, and how do you think someone works through working out what is their what are their adopted values um, or inherited values and what are the ones that are true to them? Because sometimes it's like, you know, it's a heavy coat that we've been wearing for so long that we didn't even know that it was it was on there until we throw it off. Is there anything that you would say? oh, you know what, like it's it's about getting into the nitty-gritty of it. You would recommend doing, what would you recommend uh, in regards to working mm. out what's true to you and what's been adopted on? I think first place I would recommend starting, and, and I think this is quite a high-level conversation because it's very individual to and specific to everybody. Mm. But the first place I would always recommend asking uh, starting is to ask yourself where does it feel misaligned mm. you know I love this I you'd think given my history I wouldn't really favor this word but I actually love the word disease and when you break the word dis-ease down obviously this is not rocket science dis-ease where is there a lack of ease or flow in your life because, you know, challenge is important it stretches us it grows us but where we find ourselves really struggling there is usually a misalignment. You know, like, you know, when you put your back out or something's just wrong, it doesn't matter how fit and fabulous you look from the outside or, or how your brain is functioning, you just feel out. It's a starting point to recognize where there is a misalignment. And I'll give you, I'll give you an example of that. Um, 
recently I have been noticing my two teenage kids, you know, gorgeous, young, young teenagers and recognizing, especially from a child, a parent like me who kind of grew up with this wild and wonderful hippie adventurous childhood and creativity and creative parents and Steiner school and all of that stuff. And I'm looking at these two children and I'm like, where's the creativity? There's no drawing. There's no love of reading. There's no, there seems to be apparently no creativity going on or even being taught at school. And I've been like racking my brains at how I should change school and I need to make up more time to teach them more creativity. And I was looking externally for this, this sign that was showing up very clearly as something being absent in the lives of my children. But it wasn't until somebody pointed out to me and actually kind of kicked me in my metaphoric nuts and said, well, how creative are you being at the moment? And it, it literally, I mean, it floored me because I managed to mask my creativity and coming up with lots of juicy ideas in my work and what I can do for my clients. And, oh, my God, this client's working on this film and doing this. And I kind of, uh, Julia Cameron references in the artist's way, I'm very much an artist's shadow. I pretend I'm being creative. And it suddenly dawned on me, one of my core values is creativity. And I looked at it and I did a little kind of matrix of like, 100% is really creative. This is a high-tech matrix, by the way. And zero is fuck all. And I was in the fuck all bracket. <laughs> and, and that is a perfect sign where there is a misalignment and an inauthenticity showing up, not necessarily right at the end of your nose, but in your life. So we need to look for the signs. Where do we see a, an issue or a problem that we might think is ours or somebody else? And we actually need to inspect it a little bit more and have a look at where there is potentially a misalignment of values. If I am valuing security, if I am valuing money, but I am miserable, unhealthy, disappointed, depressed, and sick, there's your misalignment. If I'm telling mm. myself that I can't make a living for my creativity and putting it aside and focusing on more of the same stuff, there's your misalignment. There's a belief system that's not working for you. So I always say look for the clues because the thing that you think is ripping you off in life or a problem is actually always the opportunity to find the clue that's waiting to really show up in your life to make that change happen. Oh, I love that. That's something I've always, you've always taught me in the uh, eight or so years that we've known each other is like, what's the gift? You've always, when everything's gone sideways, it's like, what's the gift in this? What's the, and I'm like in the middle of having a face down starfish meltdown. And you're just like going, yeah, but where, what's the pearl? Like there's got to be something beautiful mm. in this. And mm. do you think it takes just repeated practice of going through that motion to realize and surrender to the fact that something that we don't, might not recognize in the pain of the situation, but there is something beautiful happening there, there is a little gift in it if we just relax into it and then or maybe discover it further down the track do you think that that little pearl that little gift is always there well if you go back rewind to where we started and I talked about the integrity for me in high grade language and communication to ourselves and others is in our empathy and our consideration of the words we choose and how we choose to punctuate our language you use the word three times there isn't there just, you know, in your gorgeous way, isn't there just a beautiful pearl of wisdom? And even when you're face down, you know, that suddenly you'll see the beautiful thing. When your husband's just had a, you know, a double heart attack and or, you know, something extraordinarily unimaginably catastrophic, like being, losing your animals and having to move country has taken place. It is a far cry from fucking beautiful. Let me tell you. <laughs> but what it is, and this is the distinction, 
what it is, is being open and willing to recognize that in that catastrophe, there is the potential of transformation, however little or small. And it is not necessarily the beauty, but the segue, the cracking open, the, the opportunity for something to break apart, but in that same breaking apart to crack open and start again. So I would describe it more as beautiful, but like what is the lesson and the opportunity? Because when we look at it as an opportunity, it is, it's almost like um, a seedling coming up doesn't mean it's easy though. And the reason I change your language from beautiful to transformational opportunistic is it's not always going to feel or look beautiful. Sometimes it's going to feel like it's going to break you and you're never going to find your way back. And if you can be willing to, to be open to travel through that, however big or small it is, knowing that there is always duality and in this cracking, cracking apart, there is a cracking opening and then there is something new. That is what can give us, I don't really like the word hope, but it gives us that towards motivation, that willingness to just be with our pain, but to trust it's actually taking us somewhere. And I think the trust is one of the huge keywords because I think, well, we've both got teenagers. They haven't been through enough life experience to be able to trust that it'll it'll actually, it's going somewhere. Like the, the universe is taking us on our journey, even if it's not the one that we chose. And mm. do you think that the longer you've been going through the motions or the more uh, challenge you might have gone through, the greater and the deeper the trust can build if you choose it to? I believe that it takes an enormous amount of commitment, strength, and I'm going to use the word commitment again, a bit more strength and some more commitment to stay with that mindset. I also see, and I actually have got this amazing client that I just adore that I'm working with in London at the moment. And he loves to throw this line at me, but maybe I'm just too old to change. You know, maybe that's just the way I see things. Um, I actually feel, and I'm 47 years old and I have a lot of friends who are moving into their, you know, actually moving into their fifties. And it's very interesting, uh, you know, that decade of, or maybe even 15 years, 35 to 50, where often really tough stuff happens. We become parents, we lose parents, we, we gain and we lose consistently. And there can be a buildup, a residual of loss, of bitterness, of disappointment, of resentment. And so I, I really believe that for many, it takes an almost life-changing experience, you know, like the hardest and the worst to actually be able to come back to that frame of reference, that mindset that you're thinking about. I think that what happens without something that often floors us, where we go, if I, if I don't get up, I don't know how I'm ever going to get up again. We almost have to have that epiphany. And once we've had one or maybe two or even three of those, then we go, you know what? This is where the resilience starts to build up. I've, I've done this before. This is, look, I did this before and we can do it again. But in order to do that, we have to trust like we did before. And for people that haven't experienced that, sometimes just the little buildups of losses actually turns them the other way and they become more close to it. And, and they are what I call challenging clients to work with, to get them over the line of actually trusting that the possibility of something else is on the other side of challenge. Yeah, because I, I found this year, I mean, as you know, but uh, 
this was the first time that after decades of various challenges, this time that thread of trust snapped for me and there were moments where I, I lost it. It was like my connection to the trust that everything was going to be okay in the end, even if it was wildly unpleasant in the moment, it snapped. And it was a terrifying experience having that go because it had always been my little anchor, even if I was holding onto it through the thinnest rope. And it thankfully, you know, we sort of resettled and regrounded and found our feet again. And now that thread is like a really tightly bound rope. So I'm glad it felt like it snapped because I got to weave it together, back together again in a new way. Um, Do you think that if you, for example, are going through something, if anyone listening is going through something incredibly challenging at the moment, which I imagine many are, are there any, like in regards to making sure that your mindset doesn't move into that closed, fixed mindset and remains open and curious, and even, even through the pain and the challenge, is there anything that you would say to people, like keep this in mind, just like file this away in your consciousness so that as you move through your challenging time, you can always keep in mind something? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm, I could kick myself for using this word and I'm hoping that people are listening to this really juicy conversation, you know, many moons from now and that we have moved through the current chapter that we're in, but the word I'm going to use, which is a pivotal word and a poignant word is isolation. (laughs) So for those of you that have moved through the COVID chapter, you know, isolation is not one's favorite word right now. However, What I want everybody listening to think about is that we have this tendency, you know, like Niagara Falls or so magnificent waterfall to allow all our thoughts to tumble in all at once, all our senses to tumble and, and, you know, turn into almost like a whirlpool, a washing machine. And, and then we wonder why we're so overwhelmed uh, and or feeling a lack of ability or resilience or resentment or frustration or, or fear, like you said, you know, like nose diving into, I can't actually see a way out of this. What we have to be mindful of, regardless of what's going on right now and into the future, but particularly for what's going on now, is our ability to isolate what is actually going on. Mm. So... We, we forget that we're, we're sensitive creatures. So we watch news, we scroll incessantly, we listen to family members who are perhaps, you know, have a whole other opinion. Maybe we don't agree with it, but we still have their values embedded in the back of our brain. We're uh, watching people suddenly walking around doing one thing, but then a conflicting group doing another. Uh, we are taking on the stress and strain and the messages that are just filtering from outside. And that might be causing anxiety of its own we might be worrying about our business and whether or not we are going to be able to take one of those key words and pivot and turn and evolve into something new we might be looking at our body going jesus christ what's happening to this this used to be this and i used to or we might be noticing that we're can you hear just the sheer volume of things going on there might be anxiety about the future there might be stuff dog shit hanging around from the past and in the present it might not look so great So there's just this cacophony of noise going on for us. And so the most important thing to do is, and there's duality, and I always talk about duality, there's two sides to this, is isolation. Let me just shut it all down for a moment and 
isolate my thoughts. Let me deal with this thought and just work out how I feel about it and where are my values and how do I want to feel about it? And is the way I'm thinking about serving me and what would I let go of so that I felt more at ease with it? All right, tick, that's that. Mm. Then let me think about that. Why am I spending so much time watching the news, scrolling, when I know that that stresses me out? What is something I could do that I know brings me back to feeling my best, that nourishes me, restores me? So you get my drift. Yes. We have this absolute sabotaging tendency to not do the things that we know help us. We like to perpetuate stress and strain by giving all our energy and our focus to those things that cultivate more of the same. So remember I talked about duality. That's how we need to start to manage our thoughts and our thinking is to isolate the multitude of thoughts going on, to recognize how we feel about and why we feel about them emotionally. And, and literally like, and it's such a bull boring kind of example, but like shutting down the windows on your screen or on your phone, or instead of reading 17 books to finish one thoroughly before you start the other one, to just take some responsibility for that. But the second thing, Jack, which is so important and, you know, through meditation, this is powerfully accomplished. But when we come out of our meditation and we step into our day, we somehow neglect to do all the things that we invite and allow ourselves to do when we are meditating. And that is the most important thing in life, which is breath. I always say this, and it's one of my favorite Vashti quotes, is that we start the day, uh, we start our lives with a breath. And we end our lives with a breath, but we neglect to breathe effectively and efficiently and um, with empathy and with efficiency our whole life. And we want to kind of write it off as this soft, fluffy, ridiculous thing. But there is so much evidence that shows now if we manage our breathing, if we regulate our heartbeat, if we allow our blood to flow naturally around our body, it actually helps now. And there's enormous evidence with the vagus nerve to prove this, that if we regulate our breathing and calm our state, we actually start to affect our thinking. It was always historically change your thinking, calm your body. And that is absolutely true. But now there is this duality. If I focus on calming my breath and breathing effectively and efficiently and feeding my body with oxygen, then I actually allow my thinking to shift and I'm much more effective at being able to isolate. If I'm in like fight or fight the whole time and stressed and, and straining, then I'm going to pump out that type of thoughts. But not only am I going to pump out those type of thoughts, I'm going to start to manufacture the behaviors of when I am erratic. I might exercise incessantly. I might undereat, overeat. I might be short-tempered. I might be um, under-communicative in my relationship. I might not want sex. I might want too much sex. So it's all about the duality of slowing down our breath so that there's that authenticity and rhythm that we can then function much more effectively with our thoughts, our thinkings, our values, and our beliefs. Beautiful. I'm reading a Qigong book at the moment, which takes the breath to another level that I absolutely love, where you do this exercise where you imagine that you're breathing from your throat and you're breathing from your chest and you're breathing from your stomach. So literally there's like a little windpipe from the outside of the body into those organs, as opposed to just in and out of your mouth. And it's such a beautiful way to scan through, like do a body scan with the breath and imagine that all your little organs are kind of like breathing in and out. Um, Yeah. So, Vashti, one last thing that I want to ask you about is leading on from when we're in moments of intense stress and we find our, you know, mindset getting a little bit limited is something that 
uh, when it comes to the ego is that we can lean into toxic talk. So that's a negative mindset attracting more of a negative mindset. And there's a quote that I've included in the High Grade Living book by Henry Thomas Buckle, which is great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people. What are your tools um, or mechanisms for ensuring that our language stays not fake, airy-fairy positive, but authentic and aligned in moments of immense stress and pressure? Oh, it's such a a multi-layered question, and I love the quote that you used. I would start with the most critical thing we need to acknowledge when we have got an enormous amount going on and we have a tendency sometimes to not manage what comes out of our mouth or tumble out and the impact it has on others is that we always need to be willing and very competent in the skill I call apologizing. Mm -hmm. So we need to recognize that we all stuff up sometimes and, and things do come out of a mouth that we didn't quite mean or we wished we'd said a different way or not said at all. So we do need to be able to apologize and acknowledge what we did, where it came from and how we'd like to communicate moving forward. Now, having said that, that is not an excuse for repetition of aggressive or um, a lack of empathetic communication. So I'm not letting any of you off the hook who say shitty things when you're in a foul mood or who are, when you feel intimidated or underwhelmed at yourself, go and take it out on somebody else. That's something you need to handle and take responsibility for. The second thing I will say is there are a number of different types of people like your quote. And we all have a tendency, depending on what's going on for us, to sometimes drop drop beneath, let's call it the high-grade line. One of the things we can ask ourselves is, is what's coming out of my mouth just perpetuating drama? You know, am I talking about somebody else's problem? Am I creating more of the problem? Am I isolating the problem by just focusing on the drama? There's that utterly gorgeous Oscar Wilde quote, and I should be famous for many things, and one of them being my bastardizations of quotes, which is something <laughs> like there are there are those who, um, you know, there are those that look to the stars and those who choose to look to the gutter. And, and, and sorry, Oscar, for your beautiful quote being so ruined by me. But the point is this, you know, what is it that has us just talk about things that actually have no value, that perpetuate some form of drama? Because ultimately, and you'll hear me say this regularly, our words not only cre- create our world, but they create the world. And so if by what we're saying, that kind of toxic kind of gossip or bitchiness or and or just questioning somebody's um, inspiration or dream or, or their attempt to do something out of the blue, by questioning that and or second-guessing them, again, that's that kind of dramatized communication. Mm. So the one thing I would start with is where am I, contib- con- where am I contributing to drama where I could be contributing to possibility and opportunity. So that's the first thing I would say. But then the second thing I'd be really mindful of, and this is a kind of a little bit more deep in the thought that needs to go with it, is where am I actually communicating out of either shame or blame? So where am I feeling, you know, a classic one I will own is, 
sometimes instead of just shutting up and listening to someone, if I feel a sense of inadequacy or there's that ego there that I feel like I perhaps need to be heard or acknowledged or I feel invisible, what comes out of my mouth is actually there to try and impress. So it might not be toxic, but it's actually not authentic. It's actually not communication that is creating or contributing to something rich or new or good. It is coming out of fear. And so it is anchoring in a form of shame, which is I'm not enough, so I'm going to say this. Um, and or I'm not enough, so I'm going to give you know my teenager a really hard time about studying more because I want him to become more than I ever did in my life. So there's all these other little subtleties where we need to be responsible for what and how and who we're com- communicating to and why is it coming out of like that? Because ultimately it helps to create yet more drama. And then the other piece is, and this is a big, fat, juicy one, is blame. Where is what's coming out of my mouth? You know, where I'm talking about somebody else and angry with them for being successful or angry with them for not following through what they said they'd do with me. And where am I focusing on blame in my communication? And, you know, blame's one of those words that you can always spit out. It sounds kind of toxic in itself. Wherever there is blame, somewhere we are avoiding responsibility. So if you can just ask yourself that when you are speaking, are you speaking in a way that the words that are coming out of your mouth are helping to create the world, the dynamic, the narrative of the life you want to be living and inspire for others? And are they actually contributing to, and this is going to sound cheesy, our world being a better place? Is your banging on about something like COVID and or Trump, is that helping? Because sometimes it might be. Or is it actually just perpetuating more of the fear, the problem, the f- and, and the things that everybody is overwhelmed by? So again, it doesn't have to be toxic. You might think by jumping on the bandwagon you're contributing, but actually you're perpetuating the problem. And can I also just add one more little piece on which it's just come to mind as you were talking? And I'm, again, probably going to actually bastardize how you say it, so <laughs> you can correct me, but it's that when we're looking to someone that we can either choose to be inspired by them or intimidated by them, and it's a very, very different mindset that actually entails a set of actions that are also very differently directed. Is that, am I right? It's inspiring and intimidating. We've been speaking about this not re- just recently, but in the past about particularly with the onset of social media and politics and how everyone might be handling the crisis. It's very sticky and easy to fall out of taking accountability for what we're doing and just look at what everybody else is doing and then judge them for it Um, and also use it to, the ego will use that as an opportunity to make us feel inadequate as well. So it begets even more shame. Is Is that something that is, am I using the right language, inspire or be intimidated? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it, it's, there's different levels of self-awareness in how you can use this tool. Mm. You know, because often we don't recognize we're intimidated by someone. You know, a classic status anxiety is very much something that, that really didn't exist before. You know, you didn't have a farmer going, oh, my God, you know, when I have to go to the courts and pay my taxes, I feel so inadequate because my social media isn't as good as the, you know, lord and lady, whatever. It was just like everybody kind of knew their place. Now, I'm not saying that's a good thing, but what we have now is this insane not feeling enough. 
And so often we don't even recognize that somebody could be utterly gorgeous. We feel intimidated by, we might feel intimidated. My gorgeous neighbor, I always look at her and I'm like, how is she so calm and lovely? I'm such a shitty mum, And I almost feel intimidated. And then I go into this place of thinking I need to do things differently and I need to be better. And it, it almost, I feel like Gollum in the corner. But actually what I realize is that I'm insanely inspired by her. You know, I, 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 what is it that I am inspired by and what could I lean into from what she's demonstrating to actually be more like that in my version, you know, my way? Because the other thing, and when we talk about Jack, when we talk about inspired, often, and this is a juicy one, can, can I go a little bit further with this one? Yeah, of course. So often when we're inspired by somebody, we go into that kind of uh, that egoic place of, well, I, ne- I could never do that. You know, oh, I could never do it that way. We're not trying to replicate, right? We all want to be our own unique individual self. So it's not about how can I be like them? It's more like, what is it that I admire in that person and where and how could I bring that out in myself? And so it's that critical piece, again, of not leaning into the intimidation because when we compare, it's it's the end game, right? It's It's the game over, I mean. We can't be that person. We are unique and rich and wonderful for our own version of ourselves. So you've got to come back to that. And the third piece I want to just throw into that, which I just love, and Alan de Botan writes about this all the time, is how we use as a tool envy. And a lot of people would say, oh, I don't, you know, and envy is one of the, what is it? It's one of the sins. I'm not not down with the whole kind of biblical, right? Yeah. One of the seven sins. And so we look at envy as this kind of really gross, like disgusting, oh, I'm envious of. But actually, it's kind of got this like sexy tone now when we use it and we're talking about language. So another tool, rather than just recognizing oh, I do feel a bit intimidated by that person. Like, can I own, what is it about them that I find intimidating? And let me just check in with how I could switch that to acknowledging what it is I'm inspired by and how I could actually lean in and learn from that. But then the third piece is, if I look at what it is I envy about them and I make a list of that, what is it that I envy about them? Is it that I envy that, you know, when I'm scrolling down and I'm like, wow, they've got 9.7 billion followers and, oh, my God, I want to be – do I envy, I envy their creativity in their social media. I envy their popularity because it gives them all sorts of opportunities. And you get this really juicy little running list of perhaps whatever it is, which helps you to understand what it is you're actually inspired by. Mm. But the second part of the exercise, which I just love, because it always makes me feel so much better, is what don't you envy about what they have? You know, having touched into that world of Hollywood and being in that place where you couldn't walk down with my husband without being literally mobbed or, you know, pushed to the side of the road, the attention and the distraction and the interruption and the ownership that the public felt, that's not enviable, right? So when we actually start to own what we no longer find enviable, all of a sudden the intimidation that we feel starts to actually trickle away and we're able to isolate, there's that word again, what it is we actually find inspiring and lean much more into that. So that's a juicy little exercise you can do. Grab Mm. that person or that thing, 
do the double envy list. What do you envy about them and what don't you envy? Acknowledge what you feel intimidated by. Acknowledge what you're inspired by and bloody well learn to communicate it instead of pumping drama out there into the world. I love it. And and for me, everything that you've shared is about being actively engaged and finding your own path, which is it's as opposed to life just being, you know, being dragged along behind life. It's taking the time to pause and be cognizant and be aware and being open to shifting something that might not be working for you. And that's the essence of what we're trying to communicate with high grade living. And I, I wish there was like an A to B path, but there's not. It's it's a it's a work in progress. And so all of these tools have been so helpful. And did you want to say I can feel you want to say one more thing? Well, I I was just thinking about, you know, some of the wonderful conversations that you and I had in your, you know, 2020 journey, shall we Meltdown. call it? And <laughs> well, uh, you, you could call it that, um, but I would call it more, you know, dealing with life because life is not predictable. And if it is, perhaps you need to look at the life you're living. Um, mm. And that the, our ability to not always buy into people's words you know, with all of your wisdom, with all of your knowledge, and I think it's really important that your listeners hear that, you know, we all get knocked down at times. And it's really important not to try and brutally move someone on or wow them with your positivity and your optimism and your wonderful, you know, stories of why this is giving you a great opportunity to change your life. Sometimes we need like, you know, stale breath. We need people to just be able to say what's there for them and to just Mm -hmm. listen and not to read into it, not to build story about it. I work with countless people who have partners and even children children who are dying and they need to express their fear, their loss, their sadness, their anger, all the things. And so the other thing to just be really mindful of in terms of high grade living and leading and being is I come back to that. Think about the we, not the me. You know, who do I need to be and how do I need to listen and show up and communicate for this person to be of the most highest grade, authentic poignant experience. And I also think that one of the trappings of self-development or spirituality is that there's this ideology that goes with it, that you do all the things and you'll be somehow immune to what life throws at you. Like, oh, but you do yoga and you meditate and you maybe have an executive coach. Why is life now really challenging for you? Aren't you doing the things that will prevent that? As opposed to the mindset being that, no, it just helps arm us with the tools that we need when it goes wrong. It's not anticipating that it's going to go wrong, but it's accepting that it's not even wrong is the right word because then there would be a right, but it's more that there is going to be challenges regardless. So let's let's maybe move through those challenges with curiosity and with heart, which I think is the mm-hmm. really, really important to the last point that you said, which is being able to be more loving and kind and that's part of the being less judgmental um, and mm-hmm. accepting that people do go through really challenging times and we do go through them ourselves. Um, and I think obviously also that leads to just being a bit more compassionate at a base level, like just being more compassionate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just be more compassionate. I, um, <laughs> I, will, I will end my statement with something really profound here and (laughs) I was talking to a client who is um, based in uh, Slovenia 
And we're doing a lot of work on something called subpersonalities, you know, all of your different, almost cast of characters, the different sides of self. And I was going through painstakingly the different exercise and how you do it and where she was stuck. And we were talking about who she was when she was in her country and who she was when she was in, you know, another country and the different blah, 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 blah. And at the end of our very rich and thought-provoking conversation, and I said, and lastly, just chill the fuck out. And she sent me this long message saying, I had got so much from your conversation and the psychology part was fantastic. But the most important thing I got was giving myself permission to do that. So when we come back to the whole conversation of language, sometimes it is about what the intention is, the listening, the love, like you said, the compassion, the empathy, but also, you know, as I said, the meaning of the words and how we need to use them and let them be to really create a, you know, a loving and rich and accepting situation. So I want to end with that. You know, it's not always about saying the right thing, but it's more about saying the right thing, if that makes sense. It does. Thank you so much. I've loved our chat. My absolute pleasure as always, gorgeous woman. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to the Broadplay's High Grade Living Podcast. For more information on our interviewee, please see the show notes. For more information on The Broad Place, visit www.thebroadplace.com or hit us up on Instagram at The Broad Place. Our book, High Grade Living, can be purchased globally online or please ask any of your favorite book retailers to get your hands on a copy. Please remember we also have a free 30-day calendar that goes with the High Grade Living book you can jump on and download for free from our website within the classroom. This will help you action and bring to life everything that's featured within the book. Best of luck.